Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, the politics and policy podcast produced twice weekly by the Australian National University. So what have we learned in 2020? For one thing, we might try to live in the moment just a bit more. Or put another way, smile, this is the good bit. As bad as it's been, 2020 has always found a way to make things worse. Devastating drought, mega bushfires, biblical hailstorms, the coronavirus pandemic, massive job losses, and that gnawing sense that Joe Biden is perhaps not the high-energy candidate suitable to take on Donald Trump. Then, of course, over the weekend, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Some will say, so what? Why fret about the passing of a septuagenarian Supreme Court justice in another country? But the notorious RBG, as she was known and happy to be known, was a trailblazing feminist and a symbol of hope against reactionary forces. She was civilization and modernity personified, and her stubborn, unflinching presence on the US Supreme Court bench was a source of acute frustration for an obnoxious president and his craven party. Every US election has its October surprise, but Ginsburg's death was a depth charge dropped early. What next, one wonders. In Australia, however, the news is, shall we say, less bad. Victoria is on the mend and last week's jobless numbers were better than expected. Plus, Scott Morrison has crab-walked away from coal, albeit admittedly only to another fossil fuel in gas, but even his talk of a transition towards a cleaner energy future was welcomed and was a slapdown of coal troglodytes in his party room. In all, the COVID crisis has forced policy changes to address obvious disadvantage and perhaps pointed the way to policy solutions in the longer term. To discuss these issues, we've assembled a sharp panel this week, beginning as usual with Dr Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Howdy, Maria. Well, howdy. Great to have you here, as always. Professor Helen Sullivan is back again, too. Helen is the Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Great to see you here again, Helen. You too, Mark. Megan Fitzharris is a senior fellow with the ANU School of Medicine and she's a former member of the ACT Parliament or Legislative Assembly and a former minister. Megan, good to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks, Mark. And Sharon Friel is Professor of Health Equity and Director at the Menzies Centre for Health Governance School of Regulation and Global Governance in the College of Asia and the Pacific here at ANU. Sharon, welcome to you. Delighted to join you. And let's start with you because you've just released a paper um, called Australian COVID-19 Policy Responses, Good for Health Equity or a Missed Opportunity? It asks that question. It is something of a mixed picture, isn't it? The uh, the series of policy responses we've seen and uh, the way the country has 
responded to this COVID crisis. Yes, and I suppose part of the motivation for the report or the work that was in the report was to recognise that health and health inequalities are affected by economic and social policies. And what we've seen as a response in response to COVID-19 has been this incredible suite of, in fact, 156 uh, policies um, uh, all across the country in these areas. And of course, they were never done from a health perspective. Uh, it was about actually helping the economy recover. But we've looked at all of those policies to say, what are the implications for health? What are the implications for social inequalities and consequently health? So the things that happen in terms of uh, you know, jobs, income security, housing, uh, childcare, social protection, uh, income support schemes, all of that matters for people's health, their physical and their mental health. And if we get those right, and I say that in inverted commas, if we get those types of policies right into the future, we will reduce social and the related health inequalities. Uh, some of the responses were very good and we'll speak more about them and some of them were truly shocking. Well, can you just go to that 156 number you said? Is, is that an exhaustive list of the number of policy responses that you could tote up from the Commonwealth and the states that are specifically new instruments for dealing with the COVID crisis? Yeah, so it just happened. I mean, the period that we looked at was literally just the period that we had time to, to look at. So from uh, the middle of March through to the middle of June, the new responses, uh, the new policy measures that were put in place directly in response to the COVID-19 situation. Uh, you know, so whilst the, the country, whilst people were losing jobs, while businesses were struggling to keep going, of course, there were a whole load of measures in, in place. Income support uh, levels were uh, changed. Housing uh, measures were introduced. So we, yeah, we simply looked at what was announced in that period of time, direct responses to COVID-19 and put this health equity uh, analysis across it. And as you say, a number of those um, uh, instruments or policy initiatives were about protecting the economy, but you also went on to make the point that there's an interrelationship between these things and uh, and health policy anyway. I mean, the obvious one being mental health, uh, but but there are other health implications as well. So this is this goes right to the heart of that whole sort of somewhat you know simplistic binary debate about whether this was a you know whether this was a health crisis or an economic crisis or you know or whatever i mean they they're very hard they're like they're like it's like an omelet isn't it you can't really separate the yolk from the white yeah and i think what was really um impressive was all of a sudden health goals were right up there with economic goals because traditionally Economic goals have trumped health goals, I would argue. That's why we see the levels of poor health and inequalities that we have in Australia and around the world. So COVID had sort of created this tragic opportunity to elevate a concern for human health and well-being, physical and mental well-being right up there. And what we try to argue or what we try to show in the report is, okay, if you can do it now, why can't you do it into the future? If you can introduce economic, social policies, planning policies that are about economics and are also potentially really good for the physical and mental well-being of Australian society, why can't you do that going forward? What's the answer to that, Maria? I mean, you're the political expert. But a lot of that is about politics, isn't it? I mean, the, the, these issues suddenly burble up to the top. Uh, and and require action, and they require action immediately. Whereas we know politics, as usual, is very good at kind of, you know, sort of tinkering with things, and you know, sending issues to reports or or marginalising certain concerns rather than dealing with them very very quickly and very urgently. Well, I, I mean, I think the the very simple and crude answer is simply priorities. Mm. Um, you know, governments uh, of different ideological persuasions will have different 
priorities about where they spend money and different ideas about what is a good use of money to use quotation marks around good and what is a good life uh, for that um, matter. And, you know, as has sort of been, I guess, the discussion of our times right now, uh, you know, COVID-19 is um, a sort of extra sort of layer on top of a conversation that we've been having about the good life or the lack of it um, across the Western democratic world as we sort of digest the impacts of the GFC and the sort of inequalities that has exposed in our society intergenerationally um, across class lines. Uh, and as Sharon has sort of sort of said here, along health lines, I guess, Sharon, something I'd really like to know, um, and, and, you know, especially for an average listener, what is one of the, what, what's an example of a policy impact that might be a bit counterintuitive for the average listener that actually has a really big impact on people's health? Just so people can get an idea of what it is that we should be looking to keep doing into the future. So if you think of, you know, so the income support that we've seen, so the additional $550 per fortnight that was introduced uh, as a response to uh, COVID. So what that allows people to do, so from a health perspective, that matters. You've got material resources now. You've got enough money to actually to be able to buy nutritious food. So you're talking about the coronavirus supplement yes. on the doll. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's that that supplement that allows people to live uh, a life that you can buy nutritious food. You don't have to to worry about your children being able to engage in a sort of a regular way because you're embarrassed because you haven't got enough money that you can't bring the other children round to to play in a party type thing. You can now afford to pay your rent. Those things, so not only the nutritious food, you know, that's really good for your health, uh, but those other sorts of, their, we refer to them as psychosocial control over your life, a sense of control, which really matters for people's mental well-being. And so that additional money provided financial resource to let people eat healthy, you know, just in that sort of crude sense, mm. but it also provided a sense of control and hope for the future. Take that away, uh, and we we now have stories uh, of people going back to living on a tea bag. So I think for us as a society, do we think it's okay to send people back if we don't keep that policy response in place? Do we think it's okay to send people back into the financial conditions that will make them sick and ultimately will kill them, potentially will kill them. We've seen evidence around the world. Helen, from a public policy point of view, I mean, it's really interesting that taking the the example that Sharon used of the coronavirus supplement, one of the things that's come to the fore as a result of this crisis has been the the ability, the capacity of the government to step in and to do things. And the, the logic of not doing things in the past has been this kind of concern about balancing the budget. Suddenly that went out the window because there was a higher priority, which was protecting the community more broadly. And you couldn't have weak links. I mean, homelessness was another example where they suddenly addressed this endemic problem that is just that, that no one's kind of squared up to for a long time. And then suddenly they say, we, we can't have people on the streets. You know, we've, I mean, think about Melbourne at the moment. They've got a curfew, right? So, you know, <laughs> you can't be on the street, uh, uh, whether, whether, you know, anyone does it out of, uh, good, good nature or not. I mean, you just can't be on the street, right? So intractable problems were just dealt with. But one of the most interesting aspects of that, it seems to me, was just this sort of sudden, exposure of this myth that the budget had to be balanced and that certain problems could not be addressed because we couldn't afford to address them. Suddenly we can. Yeah, and that's always been the case. Um, and it, it is, as, as, as Maria's indicated, you know, the, the question about the balancing the budget is, is a political question. It's not an economic question. And, um, there, there was simply uh, no way that, uh, any responsible government and I use the word responsible advisedly, um, was going to allow uh, the, the the virus to um, run completely unchecked. Um, I'm, I'm guessing the only country that, that did that uh, deliberately, uh, that was perhaps surprising, was Sweden. Mm. Um, and I, uh, you know, you get the sense that they're probably regretting at least some of that action now. Um, but that was a 
uh, a deliberate um, policy choice at the time. Um, I think what what's happened in the UK and the US is um, there are certain policy choices. The extent to which any of them have been deliberate, I think, is um, arguable. Uh, but well, yes. the UK did sort of start down that road, didn't it? Because because Johnson had advising him some some uh, medicos who were relying on some pretty dodgy dodgy mm. behavioural science, mm. suggesting that the public wouldn't accept stringent lockdowns and mm. so forth, and therefore. They, they were kind of not even on the table initially. Yeah, well, and, that's right. And they right. were saying maybe the herd immunity thing is our best option. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that goes to two other things. The first is the way in which um, we we have enthusiasms in scholarship in the same way that we do um, in fashion and everything else. So the behavioral insights enthusiasm um, has sort of overwhelmed um, many uh, Western democracies. And I'm not saying there's nothing in it, but like every fad, it, it suddenly becomes the thing everybody talks about. And so, yes, if you have a government that has fostered that kind of approach to policymaking, of course, they're going to be attuned to what that group of people might say. So this brings us to the question of, you know, the relationship between politics and evidence and expertise and what that looks like. Um, but I think the other Part of this too is that, that what it's also exposed is just how populations are prepared to sacrifice certain freedoms if there is quite clearly um, a collective goal that people are aiming for. Um, now, not everybody and not all the time, uh, but certainly this idea that um, people won't stand for certain things, um, that's been completely tested um, at this point in time. And I think, um, you know, everybody's preparedness uh, to go to, to Sharon's point, you know, everybody's preparedness to really think completely differently um, in order to protect life, preserve life, um, has meant that, yes, many, many um uh, things that have been strongly held for a long time have just gone out of the window. And that's potentially very good for public policy. But of course, what we're seeing now is an attempt by politicians to claw that back, to re return to some of the old narratives. And I think that that's uh, potentially very, very dangerous. Megan, as a researcher in, in the health space and as a former parliamentarian yourself, I mean, are you have you been surprised by the uh, preparedness of populations to... Uh, you know, to suspend normal freedoms in order to deal with this, or, or mm. do you think that is consistent with the way we've behaved, say, in war times, for example, when there's a, another meta threat? Probably yes. Um, although I haven't deeply looked at that, but, but I guess as a politician, you you come in contact with people all the time, and and you have conversations with people. It gives you an insight that is slightly removed from the normal sort of discourse around politics. That's informed only by politics. And I think um, what most people say now is that a lot of the community don't pay attention to politics on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, collectively around this table, there will be much more discussion around politics um, over the normal course of a day and a week um, in, in, in various um, ways than there would be in the normal community. So I think that sense that we're all in this together is something that you do see um, when you're a politician, when you're campaigning, when you're talking to people. So it, it wasn't so much of a surprise to me. The scale of it probably was. And I certainly think my understanding is that the some of the modelling here early on uh, was premised on, you know, a lower percentage of people complying with new um, new behaviours and new rules around social distancing. So it wasn't um, I think that was something that a lot of epidemiologists said after the initial modelling was we didn't expect people to respond so well. So there was an insight. There was an insight from that, but but it certainly has seemed to be the case that it's bubbled up in a lot of places in a lot of different ways from surveys and and anecdotal evidence around people being really willing um, to pitch in for their community and 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 we see that. I mean. We do see that all the time. We see that people volunteering at arts events, people volunteering at community sport, people volunteering at their local schools. We do see that there is it, that fabric of social capital has not been completely destroyed, uh, particularly in Australia. It, it is weaving itself in new ways. And I, I mean, my hope out of this is that it has been rewoven, that social capital has been rewoven in a new way. Um, and I certainly think that the question between about how politicians are behaving now. I mean, my view is that politics as a whole was suspended for a period of time, and that means 
all of those players who act politically, which go far beyond the behaviour of politicians. They go to um, how, you know, the media responds, how stakeholder groups engage with politicians, how, you know, so it was that that sort of um, that tapestry of people who act politically when they deal with politicians all suspended their normal behaviour. Everyone was in it together. What you're seeing now is, you know, peak groups, lobby groups, they're starting to re-emerge and have similar arguments as they would previously had. You know, they've staked their ground for decades and they are returning to normal behaviour. So there is a lot of normal behaviour in the political discourse that's starting to emerge. It is includes politicians, but not just politicians as well. Is it is it snapped back by another name then, in a sense? Um, well, I mean, for those of you that are regular listeners to this podcast, you you may have um, remembered that I was the more pessimistic one on this panel um, about uh, the eventual return of uh, politics as as usual. And I, I think it sort of goes to um, what Megan was sort of just saying um, about the way politicians obviously engage with the community. And one of the things that we don't necessarily have a very good understanding of is, you know, there's obviously multiple motivations why people might believe that they are all in it together. Like it could be that they have really collectivist values and that is the way they want to view and interpret the world and, uh, you know, the collective good is um, a natural way to view the world and they can see the personal benefit they get from the collective whole being secured. Other people might see the personal threat to themselves or individuals in their family and might be motivated to comply out of fear because they can see that it's of personal benefit to them or those that they love. Or, you know, in the case of appealing to young people, it's ultimately please protect your grandma. You know who she is. She has a name. Appeal to her. And these are actually all different value sets. And so we're seeing that now in the return to normal politics that, you know, these value sets that exist within society are re-emerging and depending on your political persuasion, you know, you'll characterize this moment in one way or another. Um, and, And that is sort of – and that I guess is one way to sort of understand why it is that the government has been able to um, – put forward a whole bunch of policy proposals that we would not normally associate with them, even though they are clearly experiencing backlash within their own party because, you know, it doesn't necessarily fit with their assumptions or value sets within the coalition around what the state should do for people and what the good life should be like and what their obligations are. Um, And I think that is something that we probably need to think about a lot more because we are about to answer all kinds of questions like what kind of a society do we want to be? Yeah, what do we want to uh, change and is this the time to change it? Uh, These are really interesting questions. Let's take a quick break and be back to continue the discussion in just a moment. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking uh, just before the break about, uh, I guess, the ways in which the populations here and and in other countries have responded to the new rules that have been applied to them and the level of compliance in Australia has been quite high. It's interesting to note, um, I recall from reading Catherine Murphy's uh, End of Certainty essay, and I think it was Jodie McVernon, the epidemiologist or public health specialist, uh, observed in in an interview with Catherine Murphy that it was only when they saw the successful lockdown of Wuhan that it really occurred to them that that was something that was in the 
public policy armory that you could actually close off a city or you know uh, severely suppress uh, social activity in order to manage a viral outbreak which is um it is surprising really that it is possible and and yet we know it has been possible and we know it has been quite successful uh, in victoria for example there was uh, 14 new infections announced on sunday morning for the previous 24 hours on monday morning it's down to 11 so all the uh, all the trajectory of those numbers is heading one hopes towards single figures and and uh, and and genuine success of that policy um Let's go to uh, this um, back to your report, Sharon, for a moment. But just to talk about the um, the things that this uh, epidemic, uh, the response to it, has exposed in terms of the weaknesses in our society. What 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 are those sorts of things? I mean, in terms of, uh, I guess we're thinking about the precariousness of a lot of the uh, economy. Uh, the economy sort of rests on this plinth of people who don't have a particularly strong toehold in the economy and and we've had that exposed to us very well through this crisis. Yeah, uh, so incredible levels of precarious employment and uh, we look to that as to why that affects or how that affects uh, people's health but of course if you've got a precarious uh, workforce then you don't have stability uh, within the economy more generally. Precarious employment is really it's a, a very interesting thing. So what does that mean? It means you know, job insecurity. It means zero-hour contracts. It means usually much lower uh, income, not always, but much uh, lower uh, income coming and in. And usually under or often underemployment. And as underemployment, well. exactly. Uh, and so you know, going back to you know, what is it that employment offers uh, for us as a society? Well, those those sorts of attributes of precariousness. Uh, it certainly doesn't give us sufficient material resource. It certainly doesn't give us a sense of control over our lives. You've seen, you know, with the COVID uh, impact, just the immediacy of the, if you're in a precarious situation already, then just that sense of being lost in the world, uh, you know, you know, just what, what does this mean? I don't have any support uh, because, of course, precarious employment doesn't give any of the wider social protections that you might have in other sorts of employment situations. So, and we, we know in, in other situations, I'm from uh, Glasgow and, you know, at the times of, you know, the, um, the shipbuilding closures and, uh, you know, we've seen that all, all over in, in the UK. Uh, but what that meant was a loss of hope. And that's also something that happened in the US, uh, you know, way before Trump, there was this sense of a loss of hope happening in large swathes of the, the US population. And that breeds distrust, it breeds, uh, it will, and of course, it's inequality. So precariousness and also the quality of work, uh, some beautiful analysis by colleagues here at the ANU have shown that Having a poor quality job within precarious uh, situation, having a poor quality job is worse for your mental health than actually not having a job at all. So let's think, let's think about that. You know, if if we've got a, a, a sort of a policy language of jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, let's think about the types of jobs or else further down the line, what we'll see is even greater exacerbation of the mental health problems that we have in Australia. So precariousness is not just about you know, the economics of it, uh, of course, in the short term uh, it is, but the longer term implications for society, populations, a sense of hope, a sense of dignity, and then this sort of tsunami uh, of mental uh, ill health that can come as a consequence of that. So it has all sorts of implications for us within society. And can I make a comment on that, you know, just going back to your, your remarks, Mark, of the, um, you know, the epidemiology uh, and the epidemiologists of being surprised as to how some of these responses, what I've just described in terms of precariousness and, uh, you know, and the health implications, that's partly epidemiology, but it's also social science. You know, if we, if we brought social science front and centre of the discussions that are happening around the COVID response and the, the reset going forward, then we wouldn't be surprised about how societies yeah. are responding. So let's get social scientists around that table, please. <laughs> well, that's true, although I, I would say there was a degree of social science behind the UK's um, 
decision to not go down the path of of um, severe lockdowns as well. It might have been incorrect. Yeah, that was behavioural insights. That was mm. a particular yeah. – I'm talking about a broad swathe of, of social science. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the conversation. It's not an either or, is it? I mean, it, it, you know, this, you know, the relentless binaries that we keep finding ourselves in, which are very useful for for politicians, but hopeless for for good policymaking. I mean, I, I took Sharon's point to be that that it's about considering all of the different contributions yeah. together, rather than just you know yeah. appealing to well, what what's going to work for me at this moment in time? And I think that 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 is really important. Although, I have to say, and you know. Uh, I'm being self-interested here, but um, I'm going to take the opportunity. You know, everything Sharon's described in terms of precarity, um, the higher education system <laughs> is, you know, a, a, just the, the example of of this inaction. Um, you know, groups of people who um, could be the future leaders of, of research uh, and a report from Ian Marshman and out of um, Melbourne today uh, identifies those uh, research institutions that are going to be most at risk from the demise of, of international students. And what they point to is not just a temporary blip, but a long-term slowdown in Australia's capacity to be a research leader in key fields. And so, you know, this is not just about um, precariousness as something that will be temporary. Um, this is something that is going to have huge consequences um, for Australia into the future, um, not just in the social sciences, but, but across the board. And I think that that that's something um, that we we need to be really worried about uh, because it it does um, really bring into question how are we going to um, feed all of this innovation, all of this uh, technological um, development that the the prime minister has been talking about if we actually don't have the people with the skills to be able to to do that kind of work. So you know the, all of these things, and I think you know what Sharon's work does is to demonstrate beautifully how you need to see all of these things in the round. Um, and, and to make good public policy, that's what you have to do. Doesn't necessarily make for good politics, but it does make for good public policy. I wonder if there's a, um, a relationship here. I, I suspect there is between uh, strong states, that is states that have strong internal, uh, um, social linkages and capital, uh, and their willingness to operate as cohesive units in times of crisis versus States that are internally weak, and I'm thinking, or societies that are internally weak. So I'm thinking of the US being an obvious example where there is um, uh, an entirely more, much more problematic response to the crisis. We see the government at the central level is is weak and venal and 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 criminally negligent. I mean, they're they're literally passing two hundred thousand deaths, and there there is talk now. Some people are talking about um, four hundred thousand deaths by the end of this year, like a doubling of the two hundred thousand in in the in the final three months of the year. Now, whether that happens or not remains to be seen, but it is going to be significantly higher than it is now. Um, and you know, Sharon was making the point about precariousness. I mean, that that is an economy that has vast numbers of people. You know, there is no strong welfare state in many cases, and it has vast numbers of people who are who are entirely dependent on the income they get from work, with relatively little job security. And a downturn sees them tipped out. So, I'm wondering whether there's kind of uh, a, a correlation between the kind of investment the state has in in people and that people therefore reflexively have back in the collective society about it being a mirror <laughs> that's that well, is that is yeah, really what is, that's about i suppose yeah. isn't it it's about saying as, as catherine murphy's yeah, made yeah. that point that mm. that the, the society that is, that's kind of inwardly strong mm. is going to respond more strongly mm. and more cohesively in a time of crisis. Yeah. But I certainly think the sort of lockdown that Australia has had is different to the type of lockdown that we all first learnt about through Wuhan. So it's a very different kind of strength that that um, that I think you're talking about. But I, I just wanted to, to comment on Sharon's paper and <clears throat> probably not just her paper but her body of work and, and her colleagues around health inequality because it is, and I think there are some possibilities, some real rays of hope, um, and, and 
you know, as a former health minister, it is one thing that is very frustrating that you often know that um, there there is a lot of talk about equity of access. And, and I think even in the current sort of political debate here in the ACT around health, it's about equity of access. It's not around, which is important, but it's not the same as equity of outcomes in terms of people's mm. health. So, you know, how long do you have to wait in an emergency, emergency department or how long do you have to wait for elective surgery dominates headlines around health. Um, and it, it is far from being, I think, the main game in terms of um, equitable health outcomes for people. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the whole of government approach that you actually need to improve health outcomes comes from every minister having some kind of policy setting that can improve people's health, that makes them healthy enough to work, that makes them healthy enough to raise a family, contribute to the community. And, and we see efforts at that around, you know, wellbeing budgets and, and, and approaches to wellbeing and, and health outcomes that recognise that having a job, having a home, having a stable relationship, um, having hope, <laughs> all of those things do come together. Yeah, hope's and, really important. And, and you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a medical side to commenting on the health profession, but the social science side is, is vital and, and probably a good, it, 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 just as an illustrative point, if you are on elective surgery wait list, you are assessed largely through your medical need for a knee replacement, say, for example. But and there might be elements depending on the state or the hospital or or the you know the the, the medical community in that jurisdiction um, that gives a little bit of weighting to equity of outcome. But if you are an Aboriginal person, um, potentially um, say maybe not a knee replacement, but needing um, cataract surgery, um, you know the the potential health outcome for you is vastly greater than a number of other people, and and. Getting that right in terms of health equity and equitable outcomes is, I think, a, a, a bit of a challenge in a, in a system of universal health care. Um, New Zealand um, has just sort of completed an independent review of their health and disability system where they start to talk quite interestingly around how do you balance equitable health outcomes because we just know some people in our community and it's been exposed during the pandemic have worse health outcomes and they have been most poorly affected by the pandemic and that research is starting to come through. And is this how part you of get... their kind of wellbeing budget approach? Well, I think a little bit, but also recognising that, you know, equitable access, everyone being on the, you know, level playing field to get access to elective surgery or to get access to chronic disease care, they're, the outcomes that they could gain from more intensive care or, or, or service-wide care is greater for some people because they are starting so far behind. So, but getting that balance right in a system of universal health care is really challenging, but that is a better problem to have than, you know, um, for example, the US health system where so many people just don't have access at all and it's hugely expensive. I mean, you, you have other countries where access is great and affordability is great, but outcomes are poor. So um, I think... I think there are some real rays of hope in this around and and I mean I like the, the recommendation in, in Sharon's report around a health equity strategy. That is not something we've yet grappled with, but I know certain states are really looking closely at that and I hope that that is a momentum that work like Sharon's work continues to keep up. So Maria, we start obviously going off those comments, we start from a better place, don't we? Because of universal health care, because of Medicare, than, than, than countries like the US where it's uh, largely connected to employers and it's a, a private sector a dominated health system and it's notoriously bad in terms of its health equity outcomes. Uh, we know that. So countries like Australia start from a better place going into this. Um, can we improve from that or do you think we, as you were saying before, that we'll just perhaps lapse back into um, into where we were before the crisis? I, okay, this is a really interesting question and, um, I mean, you know, if you were to be sort of hard-headed about it and, and think about it in pure economic terms, I mean, the, the, the fundamental problem in the United States then is that they simply waste um, huge amounts of their human capital and potential because they don't effectively invest in, you know, the opportunity for people to, to sort of succeed. But actually kind of what we're really talking about here is the fact that there are lots of intangibles in the policy um, choices that we make, some of which are actually easy to measure, but we don't want to measure them for whatever reason because we've not thought to do it, and some which are actually quite difficult um, to measure, uh, but are actually quite vitally important to the actual kind of outcomes. We just had a whole bunch of examples 
um, around that. And I think if you, if you actually look at the long run survey evidence in, in Australia, it's pretty apparent that a lot of people think that something is not right with the social contract in Australia that, um, you know, that this sort of the life that they remember, um, when they were little or the, the lives that they had and hoped for and aspired for for their children when they were younger, they can kind of see this, um, great Australian dream is not necessarily panning out for all of their children or that it's quite a bit more difficult or or they're expected to help their children more or so on and so forth. What there is not a consensus around is precisely what is the cause of this, uh, you know, d- uh, downgrading of the Australian social contract and, of course, what is the solution to to this problem. So I think Australians know that, you know, um, life, life isn't as optimistic as it was perhaps how people felt in the early 2000s. Um, and, and part of that is to do with these long run sort of social health and inequality programs. A lot of it's to do, sorry, problems. A lot of it is to do with climate change. Um, but I think, I think what has actually been really kind of interesting, say, for example, in response to the bushfires was, um, if you recall, uh, Andrew Constance, who, you know, um, was obviously clearly on the front lines of that, um, fire. His house was under threat and he'd clearly suffered an extreme amount of mental, uh, trauma as a result of experiencing the summer f- bushfires firsthand. And one of the things he was sort of talking about was a sort of return to volunteerism, right? So, you know, as a way of sort of trying to regenerate social capital in our communities. Um, what I thought was really interesting about that kind of conversation was that, yeah, that's true, but, what was kind of missing from that as well was the the reality that without some form of state intervention, without government setting the parameters, without the government setting the right floor at the right level, mm. you can't, people don't have the capacity to engage in local solutions and local initiatives and individually based, community based solutions. And and I think that's sort of actually the conversation we're about to have. Like, where should the parameters be set? What should the floor actually um, be and you know on precarious work well you know the government's IR committee is is supposed to is due to report in 10 days time and this would be a really important set of discussions around what people's working lives look like because as everyone has sort of made the point it cascades into every other aspect of their lives yeah and that's very very well said you mentioned climate change. Let's just go to that uh, in the time we've got left. Um, we've had this pivot from the Prime Minister to gas, quite a significant pivot in my view because he's now talking about gas as the transition fuel towards a, uh, a net zero emissions uh, future. He won't name the 50 uh, a net zero emissions target of, uh, of 2050, um, but I, I'm interested in your views about why he won't name that, by the way, because I think... Uh, um, he says things like, well, well, we'll probably get there anyway. We may exceed it. That's been the kind of a position that um, the coalition has taken for some time now uh, and gas is supposedly the transition fuel that's going to get us there. There's going to be a lot of argument about that, but it is significant that uh, he is talking about that as a target. It is significant oh, – sorry, as a – you know, as, as an unofficial target and it is significant that he – you know, the man who was brandishing a piece of coal in Parliament and saying this won't harm you is now no longer championing coal. So what what do you think? I mean, th- there's a couple of dimensions to this. Does anyone violently disagree with my proposition that this is kind of an interesting moment in this whole thing even though it's late? Um, it's definitely and, interesting. And, and the tangential question, the uh, I guess that goes to the other side of the of the parlant, does gas represent Albanese's Adani? Anyone care to take up that question? I think you should take I that up, Megan. <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know about violently, but I do agree. Um, and I agree it's something that should be quietly celebrated. I think when you uh, have a win in politics, which it looks to some extent like he might have done, um, when um, – former critics jump on board and want to sort of rub it into all those people that have been left behind. It doesn't serve progress, if you know what I mean. So quietly celebrating the fact that coal is now, I think, very much behind us, I hope. Um, and and not, investors and banks had decided that a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, a long ago, time ago. They yeah. finally caught up. Um, let's keep moving forward. Um, let's not relitigate the past on, on that. Um, but uh, I think it, it's interesting around not not um, 
not committing to the target. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I would often reflect on in, in politics in my days in, in public policy is it's often very easy to come up with a great policy. Implementing it is where most governments come unstuck. Um, not getting on with it, not doing it properly, not doing it completely, not evaluating it. And so the um, getting on and doing things properly and implementation is the, you know, for years was viewed as the not very sexy part of public policy. The sort of the sexy part was coming up with the kind of the mm. nice, perfect policy that had, um, you know, various experts contribute to it. Getting on and doing it is really hard. Um, you know, it's hard over multiple years. It's hard, you know, getting money through a budget process. It's hard getting public servants and programs rolled out and making sure they're done properly. So I have some sympathy for the we want to get on and do things because you've got to do it right. There is no point having a good target and a good plan and not doing it. So I have some sympathy with that. And that's more as a counterpoint than um, than saying I necessarily agree or disagree with the target. I, I do think there's huge value in it. It's like a New Year's resolution, right? Well, you know, it's very easy to at the, at at midnight declare your intention yes. for the year. <laughs> if you have no target, no mechanism to enforce it, no yeah. accountability process, mm-hmm. chances are you're not going to achieve your New chances Year's resolution. Chances are you're not really committed to. Well, it. Yeah. I think that's correct, right? You know, I mean, um, uh, there's a reasonable amount of um, psychological evidence, sort of demonstrating that ultimately one of the reasons why people don't exercise is because they don't value their health enough essentially so they don't make time they don't prioritize it over other activities like there are obviously other things kind of going on in life here um but you know look this is this is a this is a really pragmatic move by the prime minister like we we kind of we kind of know from reading the tea leaves for some time that he has he understands that he needed to move away from coal and um he is sort of finding a way to kind of do that um without uh having his party room self-ignite again part of that is to do with the fact that he's a fresh face and not part of the Abbott Tony uh, sorry Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull ongoing saga that went on for too long and ran out of steam um and not having a target is actually one way of managing that issue. But is it? A, I mean, I'm interested. Do you call it a pragmatic response? I mean, I I just thought it's a, it, it was an entirely political response. And I'm also interested in the idea that it's a policy. I mean, it seems to me that I I can't see any policy there. I mean, that yes, we're going to transition from coal to gas. That's a statement of intent. Questions about well, what does that mean? You know, what are we going well, to do? Well, I think isn't there though an admission in it that significant future energy is going to be coming from renewables and to the extent that any new firming capacity and indeed any replacement firming capacity in the system will be required it's going to come from gas into the future rather than rather than from coal other than coal fired power that is uh, you know already already, in the, already there, there no no i do take coming. that point i suppose i'm i'm making the point more about what what is it that what what makes a policy you know there are things that 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 make very good um Sunday morning television, and mm. there are there are things that will you know signal the direction in which you want to go, not least because it helpfully wedges the opposition. Yeah, but that is different to, you know, I mean, the prime minister was very keen to talk about, you know, I'm the I'm interested in the doing, but there was very little evidence of, of what the doing was going to be. But yeah, I think they're looking for the credit for it really. on the head. It's a political problem, and this is a pragmatic solution. And, and, political and, problem. and what's really interesting about it, I think, in terms of the the, the competition with, with Labor is that Labor is wrestling with this idea of whether it has a 2035 target. It is committed, of course, to net zero emissions by 2050. That implies that you have to be somewhere along yes. the road. Uh, you know, you have to get to certain destinations or you won't make the final destination in that time. This applies to the government as well. And that's why the government doesn't want to name the 2050 target. Really, it wants to wedge Labor on that, it wants to do what it did at the last election and suggest that Labor's emissions target for uh, emissions reductions target for 2035, for example, if that is what Labor eventually settles on, is going to be too convulsive to the economy. It will damage growth. It will, you know, result in in lost wealth and jobs and opportunity and so forth. So, if you're going to play that game, are you really serious about? getting to the end point or are you just playing politics along the way? Well, no, I mean, I think we just kind of have to pause a little second, don't we, and just say 
uh, it's not good enough. You know, I think it's a very, a very clever diversion uh, strategy. A focus on gas still means we will have climate change. So we, you know, we we cannot accept the premise that. But we would have climate change whether we went to one hundred percent renewables today. Oh yeah, but it's you know this is going to lock us into incredible uh, climate change way out into the future. Rather than yeah. saying right now a policy response is we're going to really invest in renewables. So I'm mean, I. I I, I'm just sort of looping us back into the sort of the start of our discussion uh, around health. Climate change is going to exacerbate health inequalities within Australia and globally, big time. It's going to be one of the biggest multipliers of health and social and health inequalities. What we, I, I mean, I, it strikes me within all of our discussions, but particularly uh, within climate change, this is all about a power play, uh, no pun intended, um, but you know, the power inequities within these uh, discussions are phenomenal. So you have a, a discourse coming out from a prime minister supported by an institutional, you know, the, the, the committee uh, headed up uh, by gas that just sets a visual, if nothing else, sets a visual that this is okay. We're looking out for you. We're looking out for the economy. Yeah. But actually, the incredible power inequities in that is it closes down all sorts of other discussions. And so, yes, we wedge yeah, that's in. An interesting point. You know, yeah. you wedge in labour, but it keeps everything else uh, off the table. And it, it, it's interesting what it also shows about Scott Morrison, and it's almost like there's a bit of the kind of the primary syndrome that we see in American politics where you have to appeal to your base during the primaries mm. and then you tack back to the centre mm. for the general election. And we, it's a slower sort of time frame we're talking about here, but we see a sort of a coal brandishing Morrison as treasurer, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, playing mm. up to the, to the right wing of the coalition. Now as prime minister, he's a bit more pragmatic, a bit less in, in, inclined to that kind of extreme policy and playing more to the centre. But still, as you say, uh, there's so little substance in it at this stage that we really have to be very um, suspicious that it amounts to anything um, much more than gas itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we just have to say if gas is our policy, then we are not addressing climate change. We'll end there. Maria Taflaga, Sharon Freel, Helen Sullivan and Megan Fitzharris, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage this week. And thank you for listening. I'll be back on Thursday with Democracy Sausage Extra, as usual. Until then, bye for now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.